Ebb and flow inspires persistence and determination during the rhythmical patterns of decline and regrowth in life. Each episode, I bring on an inspiring and influential voices who are here to help us stand strong and walk through the ebb moments of life and propel us to the peak of our health, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, so we can live our life in the flow, individually and collectively. This includes strategies, habits, routines, focus tricks, questions, and much more that we can use to live our life in the best way in order to maximize our service to others. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you're as excited for the Ebb and Flow podcast as I am, but to make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe now on any stream, check out YouTube, or visit SolomonEzra.com to learn more. My guest today is Dr. John B. Charles. Dr. Charles has worked for NASA for over 33 years, where he started his journey in the medical research branch and slowly grew into, as he said NASA has a quote for, progressively more responsible positions, like a cardiovascular laboratory and chief scientist for NASA's human research program. Today, you'll hear all about Dr. Charles' Charles childhood drive to search for more information with a passion in spaceflight that led him to a gratifying career at NASA. He brings us through his background and how he earned the positions to be in the behind-the-scenes work in order to show us not only how logical progression is vital for spaceflight, but also how it can be helpful with asking ourselves important questions to discover what truly resonates with us as individuals. Whether you're all about space exploration, self-exploration, or both, we each have our own true inner passions that we're naturally drawn to. It is said that we went to the moon and discovered the earth, and I think this applies with our personal lives as well. The further you go out, the more you can see what's inside. It was an honor to have former NASA scientists on the show, and I hope you enjoy his stories as well as his advice. Thank you. Hello, Dr. Charles. How are you today? I'm well, Solomon. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It's delighted to be here. This is going to be fun. Awesome. Well, uh, to get started, I'd love to hear a little bit about yourself and, you know, you growing up and how you got into NASA. You grew up around the same times as my father, and that's how he got to meet you and introduced you to me. And, you know, I'm very happy to say now we have our own kind of relationship building here. Yeah, thanks. I am a child of the space age. I grew up in central Texas in the in the late 50s and 60s. Uh, central Texas where there were, at least for my family, no daily newspapers. And so I knew there was a space thing happening, John Glenn and all that. But I only found out about it by the evening news or from the Sunday paper. For the longest time, I thought there were only Sunday newspapers. But I found out there were daily newspapers reporting space events during the missions day by day. I was flabbergasted. Where has this been all my life? But I, it's it's almost like that defined my subsequent development because my life has always become has always been a search for more information and if you're you know if you're a young person in a fairly poorly informed area like central texas was in the in the early in the mid 50s and early 60s you know if you're if you're interested in information you know i have to stress for folks like you that that was before the internet that was before we had immediate access to the entire world's knowledge Uh, even the libraries were not very well populated at that time 
So I, I, I do think that I've, I've been interested in acquiring or at least getting access to information and trying to make sense of it. So I had a chance uh, early on to <clears throat> had a chance early on to uh, educate myself and become educated through the public school system. And my parents were always very supportive. They bought me all the books I wanted, and it was very you know very supportive environment. And I got a chance to go on through uh, through high school and into college. Always interested in the rigorous sciences. I was going to be a physicist to begin with. But I was always a fan of mathematics, but never good at it. So I learned early on that math, uh, physics requires a degree of math skill that I didn't have. I knew that the first time I took a calculus course. And so I thought, well, uh, and by this time it was in the Apollo era, and I was interested in supporting the space exploration business. And I thought geology looks pretty interesting, so I thought I'd be a geophysicist, but no, that was still too much math. And I finally realized that my interests were more in the, the squishy stuff, the life sciences. And so I got my, my undergraduate degree in biophysics at Ohio State, and then my PhD in physiology and biophysics, and I think that's been a real good match because I, I knew enough math to do physiology, and I knew enough math to appreciate biophysics. Uh, in fact, I, I think sometimes I'm the, among the more mathematically literate of the physiologists that I've encountered. So it was a good match, and it gave me an entree to the world that I wanted to be involved in, which was working mm -hmm. in the space exploration business. Uh, I was lucky enough to get hired by NASA in 1985 as a civil servant after being at, here at Johnson Space Center for a couple of years as a postdoctoral fellow. And then I retired just uh, almost a year and a half ago in February of 2018 after almost 33 years in the civil service life sciences business at NASA. Having, really, having essentially achieved my dream job of being the chief scientist for the human research program, being one of the people that helps def define the direction of, of space flight, biomedical research. So at that point, you know, with nothing left to prove, uh, I thought it was a good time to, to get out of the way and let the next generation take the banner up and move forward. Mm -hmm. Almost literally one day or over the period of several weeks, I woke up and a switch had been flipped. You know, and I, I realized that I've done what I wanted to do mm -hmm. and there's more to life than going to work every day uh, and doing the same old thing and fighting the same old battles. So I, I took the option to retire. Uh, people asked uh, at that time whether it was fun and I have to say the job was not fun. It was challenging, it was rewarding, it was gratifying, but it was not fun. You know, it wasn't woohoo, having mm -hmm. a good time here. It was always important work that I was very gratified to be doing at the time and I was glad to be among the people that were considered the right people to be doing mm -hmm. the job. If, if at it some was, point though it was it was not really yeah. rolling on the ground having a good time. <laughs> well if it was still gratifying what that must have pushed you or drove you to still do the work what was right what do you mean exactly by it wasn't necessarily Fun. Well, the fun, you know, the idea of fun. My wife has always asked me if, if doing this or that is fun, and I, and I always say, no, there's, <laughs> that's not the point. The point is not to have fun. The point is to do something important, do it well, you know, make a contribution, and, and it is gratifying. So some people may define gratifying as fun. Yeah. You know, it's rewarding. Well, that's what I'm kind of thinking. Yeah. So it's just not, you know, party hat, you know, uh -huh. and, and uh, dancing in circles fun. Yeah. So... 
Well, but the interesting thing, though, is that there have been occasions where I did have fun, and being the Uber nerd that I am, I identified what they are. Those 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 occasions are have been when I was doing something, uh, investigating some trivial, arcane aspect of spaceflight history or spaceflight technology, and I would just get immersed in it. And that might be the only time I've ever actually had endorphins released in my body. You know, <laughs> running. <laughs> which I used to do fairly regularly, never induced endorphins. I remember every single footstep I took running. It was I never got, I never got transported to the higher plane of existence. But my endorphins have been released when I'm doing research. <laughs> you know, historical research. Well, I, I guess you could say that that's so that's fun. that was your equivalent of you know what it sounds like a lot of astronauts experience in space. That yeah. that flow. You know, that's what I'm going after. What I'm trying. To you know, replicate that I experience in sport that we sports we all experience it in different ways. Right. But sh- uh, I want to go back to when you were first had that desire for information coming from Central Texas, like you were saying. Or what what interested you so much about the space flight that you know that must have been fun that at least while you were growing up getting into it that you were you know. T- just diving into all this different kind of knowledge. What interested me about it, probably thinking about it now, looking back over 50 years, was the fact that there was a, a logical progression to what was being done, and I wanted to understand why those things made sense logically. And by that I mean the technology of the rocket launch and the technology of the orbital mechanics, you know, the, the flight in low Earth orbit. and you know, how things had to happen in a sequence and how people had to all do their parts for everything to work work the, the way it needed to work. Yeah. So a lot of that at that time and even today I think is expressed as almost a mystical, magical, you know, the voodoo that this is how spaceflight happens. And, and I always stress to people that one of the things that has impressed me over the course of my career is, is how much human drama is involved in modern spaceflight. You know, how much how much people really do get invested intellectually and emotionally in in the process and how the decisions that get published are not are not foregone conclusions they're the result of of negotiation and argument and and wow. and talking you know talking it out and trying to convince people of your position you know other other positions think back if you remember the history of space flight when kennedy first announced the goal to go to the moon Everybody's expectation was a big rocket would take off in Florida and it would land on the moon. Yeah. And that was called the the direct, you know, the lunar direct, the direct ascent version. And then people started calculating how big the rocket would be that was going to land on the moon. And it was as big as the big rockets, the Atlas rockets that were launching from Florida and blowing up because they were too big to handle. I'm told that one of the early engineers took a picture of an Atlas rocket launch, and Atlas was an early version of, of one of the ICBMs that became a space launch vehicle. He took a film of that and ran it backwards to show something that big landing at, on the launch pad. And he asked the engineers in the room, is this really what you think we're going to do when we get to the moon? Because that's how big you're talking about sending, you know, that, that thing is as big as what you're talking about sending. Yeah. And the engineers sort of said, well, you know, and sort of figured, we can th- that's probably not right, and we can figure that out. 
and then the, the competing version of that was the, what they call the Earth Orbit Rendezvous. That, that version would have required a, a super rocket bigger than the Saturn V. It was called Lenovo. It would have had eight of the main engines instead of just five. It would have been almost twice as big as the Saturn V that did fly. And so people were saying, well, to get that big a rocket to the moon, we have to build the Nova. That's probably not successful or success-oriented. So let's just split it up into two parts and launch it from the Earth on two what turned out to be Saturn V class rockets, and then have them link up in orbit and then land on the moon. But that's still a big rocket landing on the moon. And then the third idea that came along later was put something in orbit around the moon and then send a part of it down to land on the moon, the lunar module with just two guys in it versus the part that's orbiting. And I'm giving you all this background simply because in 1961, there were arguments among engineers, Von Braun and Bob Gilruth and anybody else you want to name in the, in the NASA spaceflight mm -hmm. business about, you're crazy, you can't do that, and no, no, you're crazy, you can't do that. And eventually they, they worked through the math and came up with the right answer, which was the lunar module, you know, the, the single Saturn V lunar module approach. And everybody signed on. They said, yes, obviously that's the right way. No matter what I used to think, yeah. I now agree that that's the right way. That's the human drama. Those meetings where they had, <clears throat> those meetings where they had arguments and, and you know, called each other liars because your numbers can't possibly be right. How can that? How can that sending that little tiny thing to the moon be the right answer? They eventually were persuaded, and that, that's that is only one of an almost infinite number of examples of how decisions have been made in the spaceflight business. Well, I think that, also in and sorry to cut you yeah. off, but in general, yeah. I mean that's. To me, with now diving into history of not just spaceflight but everything, it seems like a lot of decisions and progress was made more of on a actually more of an emotional, but like and putting a lot of stress on each. I mean, there's various different factors that now we're becoming more aware of that affect our decision and logic. And you know, like you were saying, everybody had their opinion at first that. You know, my way is the right way. This yeah. is, and you, we still see it in different areas yeah. of life. But, but I think in the space business, yeah. the logic prevailed. I think in politics and economics, I don't know, I'm not an economist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe the emotional part is still given more weight. But, you know, in the spaceflight business, really, if you want to be successful, you know, you can't fool Mother no. Nature. You can't Failure's make a wish. Failure is not, <laughs> not really an option if people's lives are in, at, at stake. So... It always impressed me that logical decisions were being made, but I was, it was never clear how those logical decisions were being made, you know, in the, like I say, in the information-poor environment that I was growing up in. So I wanted to learn what was going on behind the scenes. And that's, like I've said, I've, that's where I've been lucky in being able to get behind the scenes and see yeah. some of the, get behind the curtain and see what's really going on. The, back, the background work. Yeah. So what other positions, uh, I know you worked in the, HR, but what other positions over the three, 33, um, 33 to 35 years did you really get to experience that now you have a real kind of full background? You, know, you weren't just in one area. <clears throat> During my almost 33 years as a civil servant, my almost 35 years at, at NASA, it's all been here in Houston except for you know little field trips elsewhere. But I started out as a cardiovascular physiologist. I started out mm -hmm. as a scientist in the cardiovascular lab here at the Johnson Space Center, studying the cardiovascular effects of weightlessness on astronauts' bodies. Ah, weightless. And that was important because in the, that was at the very beginning of the space shuttle era. And if you recall, one of the peculiarities of the space shuttle was that it 
launched like a rocket, but it landed like an airplane. So people were sitting upright in their chairs when it landed versus laying on their backs when the other capsules splashed down. If you're a physiologist, you know that sitting upright is more of a stress in terms of blood circulation to the brain than laying on your back. Yeah. You know, when you faint, you flop down on the ground and you rec- and you are you recover because the blood flow comes back to the brain. There were concerns that the pilots flying the space shuttle back to land on the ground after a period of time and weightlessness would have been deconditioned and their blood flow to their brain would have been impaired and they might not have been able to stay conscious during the landing back on the earth. And especially during the entry into the atmosphere, where they're coming in at Mach 25 into the atmosphere and feeling two, or one and a half or two Gs, twice normal gravity, pulling the blood out of their brain. So that was a heady time for a young cardiovascular physiologist to come in and, and save astronaut lives while they fly this brand new, brand new space yeah. shuttle back to the ground. We did a lot of work understanding the cardiovascular effects of space flight. We developed a, a a fluid loading countermeasure which augmented the blood volume when you needed it the most at the last part of the mission so that there was additional blood flow to the brain we we think I did additional studies on various technologies both before and after flight and also some stu- some of my studies flew during the space shuttle mission so I had a chance to be in mission control or in one of the back rooms during shuttle missions watching my experiment be done in flight so it gave me a sense of the operations it was nerve wracking (laughs) and exhilarating it was the kind of thing that people always thought oh that's got to be so cool and yes it was cool but there it's like being in the spotlight you know if it's your time in the flight plan and your experiment comes up and if it doesn't work then all eyes in this room of very very high you know high performance mission controllers are on you saying, what are you going to do about this? How do you fix it? Luckily, things almost always worked smoothly for us. I used to say that despite everybody else who wanted to talk to astronauts while they were in flight, I dreaded talking to an astronaut while, I was, while they were in flight because if they called down and said they wanted to talk to me, that meant something was, something wrong. was wrong. And I, didn't, I did not want to, I wanted to get in and out, get my data, and go home. That's all I wanted. But it gave me a, a perspective of the operations of, of spaceflight. And I'll keep saying the word operation and operational because that's what the spaceflight business really is. How yeah. do you move from point A to point B, all the steps that have to work in, in sequence. Then after my time as a scientist, I became a kick, I was kicked upstairs to become a science manager. That's where I spent the rest of my career. So the first decade, I was a practicing scientist. The last two decades, I was a science manager, facilitating other people's research, not doing my own research. And that meant uh, mostly on the Russian space station Mir, when America flew six astronauts to the space to mm-hmm. the space station Mir. I was one of the people that helped organize that research. I was one of the folks that helped organize the research that John Glenn did on his shuttle flight. I got to meet my childhood hero, John Glenn, who really inspired me to think yeah. about space flight. I was the chief scientist for the last mission of Columbia, uh, the research mission that unfortunately ended in tragedy in, the, in 2003. And then uh, I became, uh, uh, after various other steps, uh, became the chief scientist for the human research program. So it was a, 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 a sequence of progressive steps. You know, more they always at NASA we have a, a phrase, progressively more responsible positions. You know, you started out in the cardiovascular area. Then you start out, then you move up to all the science, all the life sciences, and then you move up to all the sciences, including the life sciences and the technology and things like that. And then you move up to a, a major you know, science management position. So that's, that's my, yeah, all things. And that's sort of the, the perspective I've, I've been able to acquire. Wow. So in our modern generation, like, and mindset, really, where 
things are changing rapidly and also like you mentioned earlier uh, it's kind of like complete opposite in that now we have information available at our uh, fingertips you had 33 years of dedication and and which is a very strong number for one consistent effort could you touch on what your time there has really meant to you you know how that learning of that desire for knowledge and how it can translate to now it's kind of I don't know if it's the right way to say the opposite but now we have we have so much knowledge so it's like balancing not getting you know anxious with all of this so much knowledge so all of that what what is your time kind of meant to you what can it mean to an aspiring uh, person that wants to follow your footsteps and definitely some of your highlights there like you mentioned being able to speak with and work uh, with your childhood, one of your childhood heroes. <clears throat> well, I, I think I wouldn't trade this for my childhood. I think you know, it, I think it's only for the better that we have access to knowledge. But the downside of that, of course, is that there's a lot of fake knowledge, a lot of falsehood that's being perpetuated as if it were knowledge and I'm mm-hmm. thinking one you know of the Apollo moon hoaxes for example that that also that's just an example of, of things that 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 may well be circulating that if you don't know the background material you might fall victim to you might fall prey to but on the other hand I think the fact that uh, you know we have iPhones that have access to the world's storehouse of knowledge is a tremendous asset, a tremendous feature. People have, over the course of my career, sometimes lamented the fact that, that the next generation or the next generation after that doesn't seem to be as interested in space as we were. They're more interested in coding and programming and, and developing new technologies. You know, I think, you know, I think, thank goodness, because with those new technologies, you don't have to send people to the moon to understand things. You can understand things without going to the moon. You can understand things by sending a few people to the moon instead of sending a lot. You can understand things by by doing a few specific measurements here, you know, on Earth or on the moon or, or on Mars versus papering the, the moon and papering Mars with people and, and experiments. So there's a lot of benefit to, to how knowledge has progressed since my childhood. Uh, but other than that, I think it's, it's really just a matter of, of uh, appreciating what's knowledge and being smart enough to discriminate between fake and real being and I think the important thing is asking the right questions knowing having a a grounding that then allows you to ask the relevant questions and I think in everybody's life whether you're a scientist or or not whether you have a science follower or not whether you're just a regular person whatever that means hairdresser or bricklayer or whatever you still need to ask discriminating discerning questions so if somebody is trying to feed you a line you can tell you know by asking the right questions by thinking it through whether it makes sense or not I think a lot of the you know the Apollo moon hoax kind of things can very easily be dismissed by asking the right questions but you know other things like in politics when people say for example if somebody was to say the Chinese are paying the tariffs you know the tariffs on on imported goods Mm -hmm. you'll be able to say no that's not the way tariffs work instead of just believing it you know falling for it hook line and sinker if somebody I don't know you can say the same thing about single-payer health insurance or whatever your, your political thing is ask the important questions ask the relevant questions and 
know what the right answer needs to be. If somebody says, I can build you a brick house with you know, a third less mortar, ask the question, you know, how, how are you able to get away with that and nobody else can? You know, things like that. But the point I'm trying to make is that with knowledge comes the responsibility to understand, to, to winnow it out, to differentiate, to understand what the knowledge really means. And I think that's the area we're moving into now. So young people should be developing the critical thinking skills yeah. to really understand this wonderful bounty of knowledge that they've been given through all of our access to the world's databases. But now you can understand what that means and how, how to apply it to make things better. What other, uh, I'm intrigued by that, you know, and something I'm wanting to cultivate is being able to break down things to be able and ask more concise, clear questions. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think even I remember reading a review about Einstein and that he was just able, he himself says, you know, he's not the smartest kind of person, but he's just what has, was able to get such precise questions mm -hmm. That it's almost like when you get it, you break it down so clear, so specific, it's like your answer will come to you. What can you can you kind of dive deeper? Like what I, I, I would like to know what how, how can we get better at that? Asking more clear questions. How what's a starting thing when I come across something? What's an initial kind of question to ask? Well, I think. That's a good question. I think you've <laughs> asked the right question. Uh, I think the right questions to be asking anytime you encounter new information, uh, number one is, do I know anything about this topic and does what I'm hearing make sense based on what I know? And then number two, if I don't know anything about this topic, how do I find out what the reality really is so I can judge this information? And it's a matter of building on your experience. I mean, you start out, you start out with uh, with knowledge in one area and your expertise is really limited to that area and so if somebody else comes along like for example I'm a physiologist but I know nothing of bricklaying yeah so if somebody tries to tell me something about bricklaying I I see if there's any of it makes sense in terms of what I do know and if it doesn't then I do my research and find out what I what else I need to know about bricklaying at least to ask the right question so it, I think it really is an issue of of trial and error making lots of mistakes and then going back and analyzing those mistakes and seeing what's what's wrong. Like if, like if for example, I want to have bricks laid and a guy comes along and says, I can do it for, you know, a third of the money and a third of the mortar and, you know, a third of the bricks and still give you what you want. And he does it and I pay him the money and he goes away and the thing falls down. I've learned an important lesson that he told me something that wasn't true. What can I go back and learn from this now that will tell me what to look for for future bricklaying and also what other generic lessons how can I generalize from that knowledge you just have think, to do it I'm, I'm yeah, 64 yeah, yeah. years old and I'm still learning but it, you know, it's a <laughs> steep learning curve it, you know between my 30s and my 40s my 40s and my 50s well it sounds like also when your experience like you were suggesting with when we were um, working on getting to the moon and everybody had their different opinion on how this is going to work are you you're referring to and I like this topic the questions um, regarding watching something talking to something everything because then you also I mean it's different from when I'm reading a book I mean my question can come from okay where's the author coming from but when I'm talking to somebody it's you know 
you can dive into all right how is this person holding himself what's their body language when they're telling me this so like you're referring in your example about the, a bricklayer you know how is this person is he is he present when i'm talking to him about is he fully understanding what i would like him and how he i would like him to lay these bricks example uh, for example you know I, the experience i've had there was when a recent or a hurricane a few years ago knocked down the fence around our backyard mm-hmm. and we had the fence replaced and the guy that was putting the fence up was going to put a gate in the fence and he told me what the gate was going to look like and you know it's going to be a super gate but when the fence was finished <laughs> super gate. you know it was going to be metal, metal reinforced and never rot and all that kind of stuff and when the it's fence gonna be was, huge, <laughs> huge, yeah. And when the when the fence was finished, the gate didn't look anything like that. And he gave me the bill, and I said, "You didn't. That's not the gate you told me that you're gonna build." And he said, "Here's the bill." And I and then I paid the bill, because I just wanted to be rid of him. I just wanted him to go away. Yeah. I could have argued with him. I could have said, "I'm not gonna pay this bill." Take me to court, or I could have said, I'm going to pay for the fence, but not the gate, because the gate's not what you gave, promised me. I didn't. I just gave in, because I didn't want to fight with him anymore. Mm-hmm. So he walked away. He won, you know, because he got, he got more than he should have gotten from me. I lost because I paid for something I didn't get, but I learned a lesson. Well, I watched. I would say then you didn't necessarily. Well, I know, lose, but, but that's right. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't learn. I lose completely. But like you say, I, you know, I I watched his behavior and I've played it back in my head now over the last several years, and I I understand now. The next time I deal with somebody like that, what will I do differently? You know, not pay for the gate and. And argue with them and, and maybe watch him build the gate so I can say, that's not how you said you're going to build it before he's finished and before he gives me the bill. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you know, in my career, I haven't really had a chance dealing with other scientists and other medical people and even dealing with engineers to see anybody dissembling or being dishonest to the point where I can tell from their behavior that they're doing that. It's, it's really more a data-driven kind of a, a discussion. But I think there's a role for that and a place for that in our dealings with each other. That, yeah. that maybe we can, again, you learn about as you go through. I mean, your, your parents and my parents can't teach us how to do that except by trial and error, about watching and seeing people do that. Yeah. What, what would you say sustained your, your drive in the effort to continue growing? And like you were saying, uh, I forgot the exact words about... You know, in the NASA, it's a progressive, what did you say? Uh, progressively responsible position. Progressively yeah. responsible position. What sustain you to continue driving, the, maybe a, a, and drive for more information? And then um, from the last question, I don't think we touched on like your the highlights, what you really <laughs> enjoyed the most. <clears throat> well, highlights, I think working with John Glenn was certainly among the most easily understandable highlights. Uh, other than that, being able, you know, being invited to be in the meetings where discussions are taking place, having a being in mission control during flights and even during simulations when it's sort of a rehearsal for the flight, those were highlights. Being one of the people that, that is deferred to when decisions are being made is one of the highlights. You know, that's, that's very gratifying. And then uh, tell, me, tell me your first part of your question again. Though. The first part was how you sustained the, oh, how you the, sustain. dr- the drive throughout the progressively more responsible right. positions. Right. Sustaining the drive is, again, it's an individual characteristic. For some reason, 
I resonate with space flight mm-hmm. for some reason. I don't resonate with baseball or jazz music or bricklaying or anything else, but, but if you put a rocket in it, that gets my attention. So just knowing that we are involved with something that involves people going into space, something that not up before the 1950s, 1960s was impossible, yeah. has always been motivating for me. And I think it, it is for the majority of the people that are in the space business, the majority of people that are civil servants and contractors here and elsewhere. If you look at the statistics uh, when they do those surveys of satisfaction among government employees, NASA always has the highest job satisfaction among all the government employees. The IRS is always the lowest, you know, and the Postal Service is in there someplace. But nobody really, very few people go to work for NASA without really having what I call the fire in the belly. You know, you really just want to be part of this next thing, you know, sending people into space. You want to be part of it if you're the custodian or the accountant or whatever. Being just saying I work for NASA or I work with NASA is tremendously motivating. Uh, there's an old story about uh, in the 60s when they were getting ready to go to the moon and, and somebody was talking about motivation among the workforce at NASA and this guy reporter maybe was, was talking to somebody like we're talking now and he saw the custodian, the guy sweeping up at the end of the day. And he said, he said I'm going to ask him what part of this, what is your job here? You know, he wanted to hear the man say, I, I clean up after all these really bright engineers. And he asked the guy, and he, the guy said, I'm helping putting somebody on the moon. I love that. You know, so the motivation at every level was to be Absolutely. involved in this. And I think that is very, very rare. You you might see it now in the, the, uh, the commercial space sector, SpaceX and Blue Origin and, and folks like that, that feel equally motivated to do something that's different. It than says a lot about the the purpose and how NASA was able to, I mean, they didn't even necessarily have to communicate it a certain way. Yeah, it's like the right. people bought in and there's an old telling about a, even bricklayers, you know, one guy, they're building a church, but you ask one person, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what they're doing, he's like, oh, I'm laying bricks. It's really kind of, there's no perspective. There's no like, upper zoom whereas like you mentioned with uh, this uh, custodian and, and then and another bricklayer they go to and you know, what are you doing you know I'm, I'm helping build a church yeah. and so it's like you mentioned so I I, I like that right. and then I that resonates a lot and then I think it it also tells a lot about yourself and your mm-hmm. your service there because you mentioned earlier which might ca- catch some people you know by surprise, you know, every day wasn't necessarily so fun, but it's gratifying, and it's, yeah. and so now that you are being able to express and and for myself and others, you know, that it was the purpose, the 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 idea of expansion, and like you, what resonated earlier, you're saying the this idea of weightlessness mm. is such a cool yeah. concept as well for me. Um, I think it's. I think we can kind of feel that on Earth, weightlessness, and you know, through health and fitness. That's my that's my kind of right. uh, we could say um, interest flow, whatever. Yeah. Um, you so you've retired, but you're still very active with NASA as you were conducting the twin study thing, which maybe we can touch on a little bit, which was really cool. I thought. Um, but is there anything else you'd like to share about NASA and its forefront of 
trying to get back to the the moon and even you know an attempt to Mars, God willing. Well, I think it's. I've always been a big believer in the moon. I've never thought that we had to skip the moon. I've never thought we had to skip going back to the moon and go straight to Mars. I think that's a prescription for failure. Just like I've never believed we had to skip the space station and go straight to Mars. There are people, engineers usually, who are looking for the next technical challenge. And once something is built, it's not really interesting to them anymore. They want to build the next thing. I'm thinking back to a story I once heard in the late 90s. I was at a space shuttle launch and I was... I think I took my family and so we were invited to the VIP briefing by the, the head of space flight for all of NASA at that time. They, they do. If you ever go to a shuttle launch or if you go, ever go to any NASA launch, there's, it's not just the launch. They give you a program of, of activities for several mm-hmm. days leading up to the launch to make sure you're fully engaged in this. And the, we had the head of space flight at that time briefing us and he said, you know, the, the aerospace engineers, aerospace companies, the major contractors of Boeing and Lockheed and McDonnell Douglas and all those people, are asking me when we're going to do the next big thing. They, he said, they've finished building all the space station modules. Now they're just awaiting launch. And so as far as they're concerned, the space station program is over. That was before the first module was even launched, before you know, the 11-year con- uh, construction business, before we got the space station in orbit so we could actually yeah. use it to learn things, that we, what we said we are going to learn. But as far as the major aerospace contractors were concerned, it was over. They were looking for the next big infusion of money, like a moon mission or a Mars mission. Mm-hmm. So that's really kind of the attitude I think my engineering friends have, is where's the next big design challenge going to come? And I don't have a lot of patience with that. I think there's... <laughs> you can't do the next thing. You can't go to grad school without finishing grammar school. You know, you can't do that thing without the lessons you learn uh, on, you know, Mercury and Gemini and Apollo and Skylab and Shuttle. Shuttle was a 30-year program that a lot of engineers just hated because it meant we're not going somewhere else. We're burning holes in the sky. We're going around and around in circles. I say you're learning tremendous stuff while you're going around and around in circles orbiting the Earth. And then they said, okay, well, okay. But let's not waste time on a space station. Let's just go to Mars. And, and then the space station came along because it was the next big thing to be built by the, by the aerospace contractors. And then, oh my God, these engineers, they're, they're, their eyes rolled back in their head. They just thought, this is the end of the world. Now we're gonna spend another 30 years going around in circles again on the space station when all we wanna do is go to Mars. We wanna build the next big rocket to go to Mars. And now we're talking about building a smaller space station and orbiting the moon and landing on the moon and they're that ilk is just pulling their hair out what's left of it and saying oh my god you're deferring mars yet again when are we going to get to the goal which is to go to mars but i think they're i don't i feel very comfortable saying that each stage gives you lessons to make the next stage more successful or successful at all so yes i believe going to the moon is the correct next step mm-hmm. because we will learn things about living on a planet that's not Earth. It's not Mars. The dust is different. The gravity is different. The atmosphere is different. The day-night cycle is different. The radiation load is about the same. But we will learn things on the moon that's only three days away from Earth by rocket ship, if you have a rocket ship, versus learning those same things on Mars, which is six months away from Earth by rocket ship if you're you know, at, at the right time of the year. I think we'd be derelict not to learn those lessons on the moon when we can bug out if we have to and try again later. 
So I'm very enthusiastic about the moon and about going to Mars when, we've, when we're ready to do so. Technically, technologically, we could have gone to, the, to Mars in the 70s. We could have sent a rocket big enough to carry people in the 70s. But I think we would have been very disappointed at the results because we didn't know all the life support lessons we needed to learn that we've learned on the space station mm-hmm. and we'll learn on the moon. We certainly didn't understand the, the biology and the physiology of astronauts in space like we will have to to go to Mars. And I think there's lots of other lessons that will have been learned that would not have been learned if we'd gone straight to Mars. So I think this is a this is a rational progression, and I'm happy to see it happening this way. What do you think the drive uh, for NASA and, and people in general to leave Earth is? Why? Because like, part of me is also like, all right, we go to the moon, we can go to Mars, and then a lot of mindsets might be, okay, what's next? I think you're right, and that's that's an interesting question, is what's next after Mars? Luckily, Mars is so far out still another 15 or 20 or 25 years mm-hmm. that we don't have to answer that question yet. Well, I might but, have to. You might have to. <laughs> but, you know, on the plus side, I think that if, if we do Mars successfully, we will have technology in hand that can take us through the rest of the solar system. So it can be whatever you want, whatever you, you know, like, wow. like Captain Picard says, you know, out there, engage, just whatever, you know, whatever your budget can afford, you can go do because you know how to do it based on your experience on Mars, which is based on the experience on the moon, which is based on the space station. What drives us to do that is different for every person. You know, I, I think exploration is a good idea just to, to bring knowledge back. There's that information knowledge thing again. Some people think that, that we shouldn't be a single planet society that we need to to seed other planets with our type so if when the big one happens when an asteroid whacks earth next time and wipes out civilization at least there will be civilization starter kits on other locations Uh, others just think that we've made such a bollocks of the earth that we need to go start someplace else you know the terraformers the people that want to make mars into the next earth or the moon into the next earth i think that's a rather lightweight argument because you know if you, if you think about terraforming Mars or terraforming the moon, starting where they are now, at some point, if you're successful in doing it over hundreds or thousands of years, at some point, they will finally be as good as Earth is now before they continue to get better. Yeah. Why not put the technology into Earth now and make Earth better so you don't have to go somewhere else? That's what I'm kind of thinking. Yeah, it I seems think like it's... there's a lot of mindset. I don't want to just make a um, two-sided, what's it called? Uh I forgot the word, but it seemed without (laughs) uh, kind of just naming two mindsets, I'm sure there's other, but it seems like there's a lot of, you know, space exploration, like people wanting to expand and physically look outwards, where more can we go? And then there's other kind of mindsets, you know, maybe we should look more inwards in our own kind of biology or space, we could call it within our, because what I remember seeing a what was it, physics class I was in, uh, in high school or something, there was some video I I saw um, about all our, no, it was astronomy in college, and um, I had actually the professor on one of the podcast episodes, but we, I remember him showing us a video of all the different galaxies, and then what is it, essentially, because for lack of the um, right words, it all like if you zoomed out or somebody did like a study and how it looked it's like similar to you know neurons and how our brain is connected and that I always found fascinating so to me 
like <clears throat> I grew up you know with my f my father is a NASA kind of person and so much exploration outwards I'm kind of very fascinated on the the space inwards in a sense one of the unexpected findings from the Apollo program the moon exploration program might be a model for what you're describing really? because when the astronauts first orbited the moon and <clears throat> after two or three orbits they were looking out the window and just accidentally saw the earth rising above the lunar horizon they took pictures of the earth rise this is the blue marble the blue marble but yeah. it was the earth rising above the the moon horizon so it was the gray horizon with this blue you know sapphire rising into the blacks as they orbited the moon it's called earth rise it was possibly the most famous picture ever taken it made the cover of all the magazines back in the day when we had magazines and it is, it's a, it, That's actually it is, what my professor was telling me. It is credited with starting the, the environmental movement on Earth because they went to the moon and they discovered the Earth. That's sort of what you're describing. And I think that's a good model for one of the justifications of going into space is to discover, you know, the further you go out, the, the more, more you, you learn about what's in. inside. Ah, yeah. So I, and I think of it, you know, I'm, I'm a technical guy, so I think... Space flight gives you weightlessness so you can take the effect of gravity off of the biology and off the system and understand how the system functions in the absence of gravity, which we can't do on the ground. Or you can put extreme radiation in in space and you can't really do that on the ground. Or you can do other things. Yeah. So that's a technical perspective of learning more about what's on the inside by going out. I'm not even a philosopher. There are, I'm sure, philosophical insights to be acquired yeah. metaphysical insights to be acquired you know whatever your insight whatever your particular strength is by doing the next thing and then having a chance to look back you know you look out and you also look back mm -hmm. I was for some reason I was thinking of that who was it Tom Henry Ford or some um, it's kind of opposite so it does I don't know if it really fits but it's like the further back you can you uh, you can look the further forward you're well, able to I think look. There's, yeah, a lot some of, there's a lot of logic to yeah, that. Yeah. You, know, you learn, and that's that's possibly a justification. The reason I think the reason I like that is because I'm also a historian, yeah. and I really like space history mm -hmm. because it wasn't history when it, you know originally it was current events. It's history now, but it was current events yeah. then. But I also like reading them and listening to stories about the Civil War and about revolutionary times and about you know the civil rights era and about World War Two. You know history because we learn things about human behavior in those times that we can then apply going forward to help us understand ourselves and our ourselves fellows. better. That's awesome. Thank yeah. you so much. Sure. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, with all the culmination and 33 years at NASA and even, you know, growing up and your fascination for more knowledge and this idea of weightlessness and being able to be okay with not every day necessarily being fun, but knowing that, like you were talking about a custodian, that you're serving a greater purpose. What has all that kind of um, taught you? What what kind of lessons, now looking back, <laughs> uh, funny enough, would you would you tell your younger self? Someone like, I mean, you, what, what age did you enter around my age, 22, 23? I came here when I was 28. Oh, yeah, because I went to grad school for six years, so there was a sort of a long period of time that I was trying to get here, but I couldn't quite make it. I think to tell myself, you know, I like you mentioned earlier, the question, 
being able to ask good questions. But I guess what I would tell my younger self would be to be patient and to be persistent. I've been, I like to say I've been very lucky. There have been several big breaks I've had in my career that allowed me to, to move to these progressively more responsible positions. Yeah. But in each case, I had to have the right preparation to take advantage of that lucky break. So I think the preparation is critically important. And preparation, in my case, meaning study, meaning acquisition of relevant knowledge. But that only works if it's interesting and if you're interested in it. So the, the, I think the one step back from that is to figure out what you're interested in and learn about that because then you make your own lucky breaks going forward. You know, there will be somebody that can help you along the way. Uh, one of the bits of advice that the astronauts give when school kids or anybody else says, how do I get to be an astronaut? What they say generally is, first, be really lucky. You know, obviously, that's not something you can control, but that implies that you have prepared for whatever comes your way. And then they say, second, they say, study really hard, but study something that you're interested in. Don't pick a career goal. Excuse me. Yeah, don't pick a career goal because you think it'll help you be an astronaut because the odds of against you being an astronaut are a thousand to one. Pick a career goal that is something you're really interested in doing because you're probably going to end up doing that for your career. And you would hate to be stuck in a career that you thought would be a good way to get to be an astronaut and then never get to be an astronaut and yeah. doing this thing for the well, rest of your life that you hate. Even if you become that astronaut, that's, you know, yeah. a certain but amount the, of but time. The, but then, you know, being an astronaut is sort of, is sort of code for doing what you, want, what you dream of doing. You know, at some point you may decide, you know, I really don't want to be an astronaut. I really want to be a concert pianist. You know, I thought I wanted to be an astronaut. But I've acquired so much of this kind of knowledge that I, I'm enjoying being a concert pianist. So it may, and also, it may also be that with the diversification of space flight now, that they'll need a concert pianist on the space station, you know, or on the moon. <laughs> Maybe you can be the concert pianist that goes to the moon. You can end up being an astronaut. So well, that's what that, I, I you know. Some people would call it luck. Yeah. Um, I think you know it's how things line up sometimes, but you know it's being able to be open because it's not just. I mean, we may have a rigid or a closed-minded view of, you know, I want to be in space, but like what you're saying, it's being more open. You don't know what other kind of opportunities or possibilities might open up. And you don't know what the future holds. So my advice to myself and to others would be to find out what you enjoy doing and get really good at it and then be open for opportunities in the future. What questions, tying back in that uh, at the beginning, would you uh, suggest somebody ask themselves to understand more, understand more? Yeah, that works, of what really interests someone and how they know because you could, because it's, there's a lot of things that sound interesting, but it's, it's like a, a, what's it called, a fad or something like, oh, I'm really interested in that, but let's say I'm interested in, in boats, quote, like as an example. Am I really interested in boats or do I just like the idea of a boat? Because if I'm really interested in boats, I'm probably going to be, I think, uh, or I listened to an Earl Nightingale book, mm-hmm. Old Self-Improvement, one of the originals. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're really interested and passionate about something, you're going to be reading books about it. 
you're going to be subscribing to newspapers about it. Nowadays, you're probably going to be listening to podcasts about it. So do you have any questions or suggestions or tips to really, to really find out what that, to me, that's what that, that's one of my main goals with the podcast, with everything is we all have that unique, that flow or that true interest, true peak of fascination. No, I think you've answered the question. That's an excellent question. And I think you've answered it. You have to ask yourself what interests me and then how much does it interest me? And I like your analogy of, of being interested in building a boat or just the idea of a boat. You can find out fairly quickly how much you like boats. Mm -hmm. I wanted to play the ukulele. I bought a ukulele. I went to Hawaii a couple times and I thought ukuleles were the coolest thing That was thing your ever. space? No, I'm just Yeah, kidding. no. But... We went to Hawaii, and I bought a ukulele. My wife gave me a ukulele for Christmas or something. And I thought, great, I'm going to be so good at the ukulele. And I sat down the first time with the instructions, and I, I did it for about five minutes and said, you know what, this is not fun. <laughs> so I, was, I really liked the idea of the ukulele, yeah. but I did not want to put the hours into learning how to play the ukulele. It still hangs on my wall. It's covered with dust. I'm embarrassed every time I look at it. But it's a reminder that... Well, maybe here's a sign to pick it back up. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that I think ask yourself what am I interested in and how much and how much am I willing to put into this to see what, whether I'm interested in you you know folks like you you've got your entire lives ahead of you yeah. dabble see what's interesting you. try different things and see what sticks and then decide how much effort you want to put into it and the ones that you the ones that you end up thinking about a lot or do a lot are the ones that you ought to be doing nice. except for this whole idea of an income and you know comfort and security and stuff like that nice thank you very much sure my last question is what is your gift you'd like to share with the world my gift or advice what well, our habits do would you yeah I suggest I think in terms of a gift or advice would be to to know yourself like we were just talking about, find out what interests you, what you can be good at, and when you're good at it, that is your gift to the world, if you're good at that thing. So that would, what, what could be better than spending your life doing something that's fun or gratifying and, and, knowing, and gratifying and knowing that the world is a better place because of it? So to thy own self be true. Awesome. Well, thank you very much sure. for coming on the show during this rainy day, beating oh. the rain and coming here. You know, I don't think it rains on the moon. No, not yet. Maybe when we terraform the moon. Yeah. So, uh, awesome. Great. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks very much for having me. Again. This is great. Thank you. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening to these wonderful gifts, which I hope have brought you some great value. We have many more guests to come and gifts pour over this world. And don't forget, if you have enjoyed any of these episodes or would like to hear some more, please leave me a review on Apple or Anchor Podcast or that little star on Outcast. I'm always looking for topics to learn and talk about, gifts to share, and value to bring to us all. For more updates, check out SolomonEzra.com. You can also sign up for my newsletter about new podcasts and blogs.